Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today, I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we're welcoming back a very special guest, Lost in Space artist, Mr. Ron Gross. Ron is an incredibly talented and prolific graphic artist who's skilled in both traditional and digital rendering techniques. Many of his beautiful creations employ a distinctive hybrid production methodology that he personally developed. Ron's Lost in Space-related works include assorted box art illustrations for both Polar Lights and Mobius models. Ron famously scratch-built his own 170th scale Jupiter II model that eventually became the design basis for the classic kit marketed by Polar Lights in 1998, thus filling the void for this decades-long-awaited product. Ron has shared his novel scratch-building techniques with a wider audience, writing multiple articles for publications such as Scale Modeler, Fine Scale Modeler, and Sci-Fi and Fantasy Modeler. In association with Kevin Burns of Synthesis Entertainment, Ron also designed the official 45th and 50th Lost in Space anniversary logos. Before we speak with him, a little background information on Mr. Gross. Ron grew up in Aurora, Illinois, and resides in the greater Chicago area to this day. After retiring from a distinguished career as a sales executive, Ron's fully devoted himself to his passion for creating art. When we spoke with Ron last time, we focused on his then soon to be released limited edition Lost in Space deluxe trading card set, featuring his own dazzling artwork, as well as a fascinating series in universe storyline. This beautiful, officially licensed card set, which was released in late 2019, quickly became a huge critical and professional success for Ron, adding to his well-deserved fame among serious fans as the modern artist laureate of Irwin Allen's original Lost in Space. Now Ron has followed up that accomplishment with yet another fantastic project, his newly released book, Fantasy Worlds Beyond, The Irwin Allen Art of Ron Gross. More than three years in the making, this full-color volume contains over 200 illustrations, covering three decades of Ron's artistic contributions to the world of Irwin Allen, and includes many works that have never been seen before. Today, we're going to speak with Ron in depth about his fabulous new art book and what it took to make this long-held dream a reality. And I'll also ask him what other future Lost in Space and Irwin Allen projects might be on his agenda. So sit back, 
relax and enjoy this compelling round three interview with gifted lost in space graphic artist and enthusiast, Mr. Ron Gross. Mr. Ron Gross, sir, welcome back to Alpha Control. Thanks, Lane. You know, I can't believe it's been well over a year and a half, Ron, since we've had you on the show. And, uh, you know, as friends, we do chat regularly, and I know how busy you were all last year. Right up until today, you had the hit Lost in Space card set that you and Kurt collaborated on. Wow. You're still living in the afterglow of that, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, the first thing I want to say is, boy, Lane, you are a glutton for punishment if you want to go a third round with me and <laughs> listen to my incessant rambling. But that's okay. I'm uh, willing to play ball. So let's have at it. Not at all. Not at all. Well, I had to have you back on because... Uh, you know, the card set was such a hit, but that wasn't enough for you, was it? <laughs> you are just No, a- <laughs> I've, I've had this uh, project in mind for a long time. In fact, uh, you know, if you, read the, if you start reading the book, you'll, you'll notice that I've actually had it in mind since age 11. <laughs> you know, uh, wow. there, was, there were early versions of this book that I thought I was going to write as a kid. And um, I have one section devoted to describing some of that with some of my kid drawings and uh, so it's taken this long to actually get it out. So, uh, you know, better late than never, I guess, right? Oh, yeah. Well, let's uh, pump the book title here. Fantasy Worlds Beyond, the Irwin Allen Art of Ron Gross. I had a sneak preview of it, obviously. And the other little thing I'll just say is thank you. I was very honored <laughs> and, frankly, a little intimidated when you asked me, of all people, to write the foreword to the book. I really <laughs> thank you for allowing me to do that. I hope I didn't let you down. Oh, my God, Lane. Are you kidding I mean, what you wrote, and by the way, I have to say, you wrote twice as much as we used. I mean, your original foreword was probably longer than my uh, preface and my first chapter combined. I mean, you really you really put your heart and soul into this, and I really appreciate that. Oh, well. So we had to cut it down a little bit. But, you know, I have this crazy idea. I'll bounce it off you right now. At some point in the future, I'd kind of like to put that original unedited version up on my Facebook page for people to see. How do you feel about that? Uh, go right ahead if you want to. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure it's worthy, but uh, oh, it uh, is. It, it was it was from the heart, and I'd never been asked to do anything like that. I, I don't consider myself a good writer, but I you gave me some great advice. You said just talk about how you feel about the show, and right, and you know I was uh, thrilled when you decided to go ahead and pull the trigger on this thing because it was. And we're going to talk. Well, thanks, a, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. We're going to talk a lot about the book in a little bit of detail. We don't. We want to leave some of it to the imagination because you're just getting ready to ship these out. I guess right. I started yesterday, as a matter of fact. We're recording this on a Wednesday. I should have all of the pre-orders out by early next week at this point. So uh, that was a process that uh, was a little intimidating to me, dealing with Amazon, not knowing their procedures, not mm. knowing what to expect, knowing there could be unexpected uh, pitfalls along the way. I mean, it, you know, I, I'm glad to be at this point. I'll just say that. The uh, formatting of the book was a challenge because they have very strict parameters. That turned out to be no issue. And then uh, there are you know, a bunch of other things that come up along the way. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like everything has been satisfied, and uh, we're on the way to sending these things out. So I'm very happy about it. Well, you're known as a person that pays close attention to the details. And I got to hear from you about some of these challenges, and you surely mastered them all because, hey, the books are going out. That's great. And like I said, I want to talk about some of the chapters in detail and and kind sure. of uh, go through some of the artwork that's in here, which is always great. But I think it's only fitting that we start off with a tribute that you wrote at the beginning of the book, because with all the challenges, yes. <laughs> all the craziness that we had to deal with during 2020, 
a real loss for all Lost in Space fans was the passing of Kevin Burns, who, of course, you had a personal and a professional relationship with. Tell us about that tribute, if you would. Yeah, uh, well, this is a case where uh, I actually put that tribute up on my Facebook page uh, several months ago, but this is an expanded version of it in the book. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go over it again and add a few more pertinent details. And, uh, yeah, I mean, losing Kevin was was just a blow. I mean, a a blow to the entire uh, world of the Irwin Allen properties. And besides that, he's just a great guy. I mean, Mm -hmm. he was someone who... uh, one of these rare people who was able to approach things with this kind of childlike wonder and yet pull it off with uh, consummate professionalism. And that's what he did in everything he did. I mean, it wasn't just the Irwin Allen properties, but all the other projects too, with his uh, TV productions, Ancient Aliens, et cetera. You know, so uh, Kevin is just a huge loss. And there's obviously, there was no question as to who I was going to dedicate the book to. (laughs) Uh, I just wish that Kevin uh, were here to see the final result. Uh, I'm lucky enough to the extent that he did see the initial outline, so he knew what this thing was going to entail. But but having the, the book physically in your hands is a whole different experience. So, uh, uh, yeah, so uh, as, as far as Kevin's concerned, um, maybe I should backtrack a little bit and tell you a little bit about my relationship with him and how it got started. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, please. Okay. Well, I met Kevin at the uh, 30th anniversary for Lost in Space in Boston in 95, and it was a brief meeting, nothing out of the ordinary. It was uh, right. something that perhaps he wouldn't even remember, but of course I did. But the the real introduction to Kevin took place in the early 2000s, and uh, here's basically what happened. As you know, uh, my scratch-built Jupiter 2 model became the basis for the Polar Lights production kit. Sure. After many successful runs of that kit, uh, the company decided to change the box art, and so they did one final run with a different box art. They asked somebody else to do it. And frankly, I wasn't very happy about that. I'll okay. tell you right now, I was kind of pissed <laughs> right? <laughs> because right. that project was always my baby. And so what I did was I simply uh, did my own version of uh, Jupiter 2 box art because I also knew that there was another company on the horizon called uh, Sci-Fi Metropolis who was planning to do a Jupiter 2 release. And I thought, well, we'll just, you know, we'll have uh, Norman Sockwell, who was running that company, we'll have him use this one. You know, it was important to me to put that piece of artwork out there. What happened there was, I guess Norman was licensed at the time with Kevin, and Kevin uh, saw that piece of artwork, and Norman must have given him my phone number, so he called me one day. We talked for hours. Ah. And I'm going to say this was somewhere around, uh, oh gosh, okay. it would have to be 2002, because I remember we discussed uh, Jonathan's passing. Right. And Kevin just loved that artwork. And I'll tell you what that artwork was. It was an earlier version of the piece that I did for Mobius. Okay. And a lot of fans probably have seen this thing. Uh, it had a different color scheme, more of a reddish background. And I, I was proud of it. I mean, it had very interesting color relationships. And Kevin, who was a uh, consummate artist himself, just loved it. Uh, there was one thing about it that I didn't care for, though, and that is that on the underside of the Jupiter II, I used kind of a color that wouldn't have been reflected by any of the surroundings. So there was a, what I would consider a technical error in that piece. Uh, so uh, I was going to let Norman use the original, and then when Mobius uh, got around to doing their Jupiter II kit years later, I did a digital modification of that piece, which is what the Mobius box art is. Right, okay? right. Different color schemes, some slightly different background elements, but essentially the same piece. Uh, but the first piece, the original one, is the one that captured Kevin's attention. And like I said, we talked for hours that first night, 
and got to the point where he even discussed, like I said, Jonathan's passing and uh, Jonathan's time in the hospital who and his reading of the uh, the script for the impending uh, NBC special, which was to wrap up Lost in Space. Mm-hmm. Kevin described to me how Jonathan was making his usual notations mm-hmm. <laughs> in the margins to, <laughs> to change all of his dialogue. <laughs> and Kevin is lucky enough to secure that script. He had that in his possession. So, wow. uh, And he shared with me that uh, he didn't know how in the world Jonathan could ever have pulled that off because he was just so frail at that point. Yeah. But, uh Anyway, so that's how it all got started. And, you know, then I kind of became Kevin's personal pick to do this stuff. I mean, I don't know how how else to describe it, Lane. Uh, You know, I was just honored that uh, he chose me and uh, he thought that I could honor the property in the way that uh, apparently I've tried to do anyway. So uh, I think uh, everything has worked out over the years. Uh, Again, it was just an honor to uh, be the one chosen to do a lot of this stuff, whether it involved box art for model kit companies or projects thereafter. Right. You know, I owe it all to Kevin. That's great. Well, I mean, of course, I feel honored that I was able to interview him a couple of times and uh it was always a pleasure talking with him i mean uh, he didn't know me from adam but i felt like i sort of had his blessing with the podcast it was kind of interesting you know i know he was listening to the show because i would get some <laughs> random emails from him that were like at three o'clock in the morning mentioning yeah, some, ob- me. <laughs> <laughs> some obscure thing hey we tried to get me go to do an action figure for lost in space but for some reason the idiots wouldn't go through <laughs> With it. Yeah, so, well, if they had, they would have had an artist ready and waiting. But <laughs> exactly, <laughs> but yeah. that's just, that's too bad. I remember when you called me with that uh, information on that email. I thought to myself, "What?" The? And then I remembered Kevin used to do some crazy things with me too. Like he called me at midnight one time. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, just you know, it's ten o'clock his time. It's midnight my time. He doesn't seem to care. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so he was up. He thought I, you'd to be. To tell you the truth, I didn't care either because it was always great to hear from Kevin. So that's great. Well, well, we miss him. You know, we're all just crossing our fingers and hoping that the properties are going to still continue, you know, under, <laughs> I don't know if they can be as well cared for as he did it. Cause he really was the keeper of the flame as you write oh, the yeah. book. I mean, but I'm happy that the book had his blessing and I know it's a disappointment. He didn't get to have it in his hands, but right. at least he got to see a preview copy of it. So that tribute really meant a lot. Sure. And that's something I feel bad about. We haven't had an opportunity on the podcast to really talk about his passing. So I'm glad you and I are having this opportunity oh, right yeah, now because yeah. he means a lot to the lost in space fan community. Oh, sure. Well, let me just say briefly, Lane, as far as the follow-up to Kevin, I have a high degree of confidence that Derek Tilgis is going to pick up this ball and run with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a high degree of competency there. I like Derek a lot. Uh, we talk frequently, too. He was Kevin's right-hand man. Now he's right. kind of running the show there. You know? Oh, yeah. And he's much younger uh, than we are, so you think, you know, you first, the first thing you think of is, does he really know that much about the intimate details? Well, I'll tell you this, he has a hunger to learn, all right? Great. If he doesn't know, he'll find out. You know, I just feel very comfortable with this situation as it is. I don't think we can have a better man in charge in the aftermath of Kevin's passing. That's great. Well, if you feel confident, that's good enough for me, Ron. So that makes me feel good. That makes you yeah. feel great, yeah, actually. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, let's dive into this a little bit. Now, in addition to the tribute to Kevin, you also call out some other folks that meant a lot to you. And, and I guess you had some help in the book. So why don't you talk about that? Yeah, okay. Uh, well, first of all, I want to mention Mike Clark, because uh, sure. everybody knows who Mike Clark is, right? right. Uh, I've known Mike since the 80s. Um, Mike put out a video back in the 80s, uh, which was a video tribute 
for the 20th anniversary of Lost in Space. I've got my hands on that way back then mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in 85. And that's how I became introduced to Mike through a mutual friend. And we've been exchanging Christmas cards and phone calls ever since. So uh, yeah. Great guy. Uh, great guy, yeah. And I wanted him to be my editorial consultant. You know, my first experience with writing was technical articles involving scratch building. And they're technical. I mean, that's, that's yeah, the best yeah. word to describe it. I mean, I have a tendency to uh, maybe overuse words and uh, describe things in ways that are beyond what is necessary. Okay, I'll put it that way. And Mike uh, had a very effective way of toning me down, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for lack of a better description. Uh, his editorial skills are second to none. And, of course, he's the consummate uh, authority on all things lost in space. I mean, what better guy could you get to do a job like this, right? So a uh, public thank you to Mike Clark. Uh, he patiently went over every chapter with me. Wow. And I implemented 80 to 90% of his suggestions. So uh, not too proud to admit when uh, somebody else has a better idea. So thanks a lot, Mike. Yeah. Well, everybody needs a little editorial feedback. I think that you were smart to get Mike to do it. So oh, that's yeah. well, awesome. I was, there was a pride factor involved initially because up until this point, I've never been edited. <laughs> I mean, my magazine articles that published back in the 90s were published verbatim. All right. I mean, I'm not sure if that was because they were that good or because the editor was that lazy or combination thereof. But nevertheless, that was the way it was. And so I had to swallow my pride a little bit on this one, but it was the right thing to do. Mike had the answers. That's great. Well, you also mentioned a few people that were of inspiration to you artistically, right? Yes. I mentioned four artists. I mentioned James Baum and Mort Kunstler as my uh, legendary artistic role models. They both did box art for Aurora back in the day. Baum, of course, did those wonderful uh, monster (laughs) monster models. I mean, my God, they're classics. And Mort Kunstler was the guy who did the Lost in Space uh, and most of the science fiction box art for Aurora. And, of course, both of them went on to be renowned Western artists uh, for Western uh, themes. Uh, And I think both are alive to this day. Wow. Uh, I had a chance to actually talk to James Bama several years ago. Uh, that was set up for me by um, Mobius Models. Um, Frank Winsper set that up for me. He wow. knew James Bama, and he set up this interview for me. I don't know why he did it, but I was, I'm not going to pass that up, that's for sure. Yeah. So I have that on a digital audio somewhere. But uh, Mort Kunstler I've never actually met, but what a fantastic artist he was. And then I, I also mentioned two contemporary artists who uh, have meant a lot to me and who have actually helped me along the way, and they are Mark Duray and Gary Makatura. Mm. And let me just describe that briefly. Uh, of course, everybody knows uh, Mark DeRay's artwork. He's all over Facebook, and yeah. he's just he's just incredible. I he mean, and Mark and I have been friends for decades, okay? But both of these guys helped me out when I was struggling a little bit, making the transition from scratch building back to uh, 2D artwork. My methodology is actually a hybrid one that combines digital techniques with actual physical rendering, which we discussed during the last uh, podcast. Right. Uh, but when you make that transition back, because I had done a lot of uh, painting and that sort of thing well before I built any scratch belts, it's a difficult thing. And these guys were both completely unselfish and guided me. Mark actually helped me out with the box art for the Polar Lights kit with some mm. advice. And Gary Makatura, he, let me tell you who he is. He's the guy who did all of the uh, Aurora What If fantasy boxes back in the 90s. Okay. Okay. I, yeah. I couldn't quite place the name until you told me that. So that's great. Yeah. And he also did most of the artwork for uh, Monarch models, like that Nosferatu piece, for example, uh-huh. the Ghost of Castlemere and all that, you know. Uh-huh. And if there's anybody who can emulate the work of James Bama, 
with his artistic style. It's it's Gary. I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah. I mean, the talent and uh, what I wanted from these guys was a way for them to help me to loosen up a little bit because I have a tendency to be very tight with my rendering style, even when I just do it the old-fashioned way physically. And of course, with the hyper-digital technique I'm using now, perhaps even more so. But eventually I just decided, you know, that's just the way I express myself. That's not going to change, so the hell with it. So my style is tight. That's the way it is. Uh, I do envy people like them, though, who are able to express themselves in a much more uh, free manner and make the statement and... I felt compelled to put them in there, too. You know, I love that you mentioned James Bama because, <laughs> coincidentally, you know, Kurt and I got into this discussion about those old Aurora Monster Model kits on the mm -hmm. last episode review we did. And Kurt yeah, I and noticed I, that. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. It was. Well, it was a perfect episode to do it because, you know, that episode just had <laughs> a whole rogues gallery of monsters. But, you know, we both mentioned the fact that the box art was way better than the mo the models themselves, which were awesome. Don't get me wrong. But Oh, that's why I bought the models. I don't I yeah. give a crap about the models back in those days. <laughs> I wanted the box art. That's great. That's absolutely <laughs> you know? great. Well, I mean, I wound up building them. Don't get me wrong. But uh, yeah, yeah. I wanted that artwork, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. Now, when I saw the first Lost in Space models, I just about had a heart attack. I wanted definitely wanted to build those in, in addition to having the great box art. But the first ones that I bought that were the Bama artwork, I just, you know, I wanted those paintings. <laughs> yeah, they're great. They're great. Yep. I really appreciated that. And that's cool that you put those uh, shout outs to those guys in there. Oh, yeah, they deserve it. All yeah. of them. They really do. Yeah. So there's too much uh, competition sometimes, I think, among artists and too many things going on that are less than positive. And so this is my attempt to try to rectify some of that. Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. Well, this book, it is an art book after all. Page one of this book is <laughs> Enter If You Dare. I love this right off the bat. You've oh. got this, uh, <laughs> the, the uh, fifth dimension alien reaching. Ooh, scary kids. He's reaching out from the ether there. Yeah. That is a cool, that's a cool design you got there. I got, I got to talk about that, Lane. All right. Because okay. look, let's go back to the, the first books that I was going to do as a kid, right? Now, I've got one of them pictured in this volume, all right? What I didn't mention is that there were three of them. Oh, okay. I did. <laughs> this is what I did as, as a kid. I was so enthralled with the show, you know, that I would go out and buy these little binders, and I would create what I called a book back then, uh, illustrations on the covers, and then I would simply write out uh, what I remembered from the episodes. Mm -hmm. That was the book, right? And then, of course, I had illustrations throughout in the third incarnation of the book, I had a title page, which is very much like this one. It says, Enter If You Dare with the uh, Invaders. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to do an updated version of that just because I want to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just because I did it all those years ago. And I was a little older when I did that. I'd have been 13 or 14 or so. And I'll put that up on Facebook one of these days, the comparison between the two. The first one didn't have the outstretched hand. Uh, mm. that, that's something I, I started using later in various pieces of artwork. And by the way, the way I did that was I used my own hand as a model, photographed wow. it in the mirror, <laughs> and then added the distortions later. So uh, there's always a, a secret to what goes into producing a piece of artwork. So that aspect of it, that's how it was handled. Uh, so the enter, if you dare, that goes back to uh, age 13 or 14 and it's mainly to satisfy me, so sorry about that. No, don't, <laughs> nothing to apologize for you. It's cool, and it's a great way to get you excited to, to dig in further. And it's really cool that you mentioned that, that it goes all the way back to your childhood, because I was going to say, that's one of the things I like about how this book is organized. It's chronological. I mean, you could almost call it the, the story of the artistic life of Ron Gross, and it all starts with a preface, doesn't it? 
Yes, it does. And, and there I describe what it was like to actually be there when the show first started, uh, talking about that original promo that CBS put out in the uh. summer of 65, you know, and tying it into the actual uh, space program of the time. I mean, you know, I used to sit up uh, and watch these space shots, the Gemini shots hosted by Walter Cronkite. That was a big deal for me. You yeah. Know? And then they have the show come on the air that was originally intended to be a logical extension of uh, the actual space program with a few monsters thrown in. Of course, it didn't uh, remain that way. It became more of a fantasy thing later. But my emphasis in the book, though, is basically on the uh, more serious side of the show. I think that obviously that's my personal preference, and uh, that's what I wanted to emphasize in an attempt to dignify the show. Right, right. If somebody else wants to do a book about the comedic stuff, that's fine. But that's just not me. (laughs) No, and it's funny you mentioned that. uh, I think we've touched on this before. That promo, that summer of 1965 before Lost in Space aired, that really had an impact on you to this day, didn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, we talked about the aliens who popped up at the end and uh, how, you know, 50 some years later I was still pissed about it because they never showed up <laughs> showed up in the, in the show uh, so we rectified that with some of the artwork and the trading cards and now of course in the book they're quite prevalent in the book too uh, but yeah uh, so the book starts out that way and I talk about uh, how exciting it was to pick up the TV guide every week and read about the next episode and uh, and about how I had to watch the show in the early days Lane I mean I, let me describe that briefly uh, we had uh, an old TV set, was a retired Westinghouse, that I was forced to watch the show on because mm. the other sets were being occupied by, uh, <laughs> well, the Virginian was in color, so my dad had to watch that, of course, on the main set, so on and so forth, so I was stuck upstairs. And this doggone thing had a picture tube that was so bad that it required several hours just to warm up. And so, wow. and, I, and I didn't realize that during the first few episodes, so I'm, I can hardly see what's going on here, you know. Mm. Then I figured it out, and uh, so as soon as I got over from school, I turned the set on. And by the time 6.30 came around, that was that central time, then I could actually see something, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, seriously. There I was with a pad of paper and pencil drawing some of these things all those years ago during the first run, and that's how this whole thing got started. Yeah, humble beginnings, that's what Chapter 1 is called. Yeah, and boy, yeah. they were humble, I'll tell you. Well, it, they, sure, they sure were. Uh, it was humble in some ways, but that's what, it's just another thing I love about reading this book. I mean, it's an art book, but folks, the, <laughs> the chapters, are they're just sprinkled with so much nostalgia and, yeah. you know, talking about what it was like to be there and everything. I mean, you mentioned TV Guide, Admiral, Magnavox, Westinghouse TVs, all these things. I mean, they just bring back so many memories. I mean, kids today have no idea what a TV guy, guy oh, yeah. is. Do you know, Lane, that I, I cannot stand to listen to the theme for the Virginian to this day. <laughs> I, said, I mean it. You know, that, and that for 90 minutes, that damn thing ran every single week. <laughs> Ron, that is so you. But you know, I, I, <laughs> that is so. But I got to mention something. I, I have to tell my own little nostalgia story. You start yeah, talking about the old TV sets and everything. So we only had one TV set until 1969. It was this little tiny black and white 15 inch GE TV. Yes, GE made TVs back in those days. You know, this is <laughs> this is how far back I go. But then in 1969, and this ties into what you were talking about with the space program. My dad splurged. He got like this 19-inch, wow, big 19-inch RCA color TV because we were going to watch the moon landings in color. But guess what? They were in black and white. They were in black and white. (laughs) 
<laughs> you really expect NASA technology to to catch up with uh, what we have here? I mean, they put men on the moon with a slide rule, for Christ's sake, you know? My dad was so pissed. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> I spent all this money. Hey, the TVs were expensive for people back then, though. That's so, it's amazing you guys had three TVs in the house. Well, we one was re- inherited from my grandmother, and then the, the retired Westinghouse, and the, that had to be replaced because it went bad. So my parents finally bought the Magnavox with the old rounded picture tube effect. Where yeah. my dad watched that damn Virginian every week. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah. So anyway, but it's fun to look back, though. It is. It is. Well, chapter one's not all stories. It's also got artwork. Actually, it starts off. You've got two oil paintings here. I guess you must have done those when you were in college. Now those are really cool. They kind of a a Man Ray surrealist feel to them almost. I don't know if you were going for that, but those are very cool. Yeah. Well, those are large, large scale oil paintings. I did those in college. You're right. Mid seventies. Uh, the top one with the alien landscape, I have that in my living room to this day. Mm, it's beautiful. It's above my stereo system, my vintage stereo system. Uh, cool. <laughs> All high-end stuff from the late 70s, which I've restored recently, and I put this painting right above. Uh, well, let me tell you a little bit about these. The first one is called uh, Antares 5. That's the name I chose for it. Uh-huh. The uh, second one, the bottom one, is called Beneath Antares 5. So if you see that little cave in the yeah. Uh, well, that's what the inside is supposed to look like. So That's cool. No, yeah, I, I, was, that was my intention back then anyway. I'm not sure if it's realistic or if it really flies today, but that's what, it was my thought process back then. No, it's really, like I said, it kind of reminded me. I mean, it's not totally like surreal, but it has that feel to it to, a little bit. Right, the way yeah. That, so, but there's other artwork. I mean, you've got basically a lot of things you did as a kid, and i got to say, wow, compared to my Lost in Space robot <laughs> poster I did, I think I was like nine or something like that. I'm embarrassed that I even put that up there. Yeah, you can see right off the bat, Ron, you uh, you definitely had artistic talent at a young age. So talk about some of these well, images. First of all, I picked the best ones. Uh, come on, some of mine really suck too. I mean, that's just the <laughs> way it is, you know. I don't know. Uh, some of the real early ones, you know, I have a hard time showing. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, these, you know, this, this is all just a labor of love. I, I just started doing these drawings soon after the show came on. And I remember the, the one I did of the derelict there, uh, when Mike Clark was doing the editing for the book, he said to me, when did you do that? And I said, I don't know, about 1970, I think, or somewhere around there. And he goes, that looks like you could have done it yesterday. It's beautiful. And, and well, it's, the details are way off. But I think what he was referring to was the lighting, the shadowing. You know, it's, yeah. I, all of a sudden you get to be a certain age, the brain kicks in and you become aware of light and shadow, you know. And uh, that's what happened there. I mean, it was just one of those things where it was a, in a transitional phase for me. What medium is that? That thing is done on a piece of uh, eight and a half by eleven or nine by twelve. I forgot which colored construction paper. Like construction, okay. Yeah, and it's done with white tempera paint, white colored pencil, and that's about it. The little stars, the dots uh, in the background—they were all done individually. I always had a lot of patience when it comes to that sort of thing, and I started the highlights with the white tempera paint. And then graduated into the uh, darker areas with the white colored pencil, and uh, just made it work. Oh, that's great. I've always had a tendency to do things my way, which is usually not the accepted way, but uh, as long as the results are there, who cares? Oh, no. They're they're great. And like I said, boy, you can obviously see you have a gift right from a young age with these. So they may be the best ones, but they are pretty cool. <laughs> Let's talk about that one on the tape box, that portrait of Jonathan. Okay. Yes. Now that one... Um, the great Oniac. The great Oniac, <laughs> yeah. Uh, funny, I just put out a poster uh, of uh-huh. that particular subject recently. 
but I got to the point where I would actually record some of the audio of Lost in Space, and this was on reel-to-reel. This is before cassettes were ever heard of, okay? Right. Three-inch tapes, and so I created little illustrations for uh, some of the tape box covers, and that was one of them. I put that online a few years ago, and Kevin loved it. And the first thing he does, he writes back to me, he says, I own that amulet, you know? Ah. <laughs> I, I already knew that, of course. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. But that particular piece, uh, I kind of like because I used uh, one of the Topps gum cards as a reference, and it actually came out looking like Jonathan. How I pulled that off at that age, I'm not quite sure, but uh, I'm still quite happy with it. That's great. That's but, done in pen and ink, by the way, with a little blue color pencil. So, and just a little piece of paper, and I cut it out and slapped it on the box, and that was the end of it. Well, thank God you kept all these things, right? Yep. You know, Kurt and I were both lamenting the things that we lost because when we went off to college, somehow our rooms got clean, <laughs> cleaned out, you know, but I managed to hold on to that robot poster of mine. So you must have had these well tucked away and safekeeping. Yeah, and they don't take up a whole lot of space, but yeah, they're in a box downstairs, and uh you know, I can get them out and relive this past anytime I want to, and that's that's kind of special to me. Right. Well, time marches on, so from humble beginnings, we get into eventually your chapter two, where you start talking about your whole scratch-building modeling days. Talk about yep. chapter two a little bit here. All right. Well, chapter two basically starts out with a section on what I call early model influences, and it talks about some of the Aurora models, et cetera, that had an impact on me. And then we go into the scratch builds I did in the, well, throughout the 90s, actually, uh, because I got to, to the point where I was fed up with waiting for a production kit, you know? Right. The original Lost in Space uh, diorama kit was very nice, except the chariot was kind of a, it was out of scale. It was oversized and not very accurate. So right. my first project involved scratch building a new chariot for that thing. And uh, that was well received. That goes back to about 92. And then we followed that up with a robot which was not, I, that's not really a scratch build. That's, there are scratch built sections of it, like the claws, et cetera. Right. But uh, that's mainly uh, an elaboration of an existing product with, the, you know, intricate lighting circuitry, et cetera. All of which uh, I had to design and build, by the way. It wasn't like today where you can just buy a lighting circuit and pop it in. This is all done, sure. you know, <laughs> from scratch, right. including the lighting circuits. So uh, it was difficult back in those days. Well, you had the background uh, to do that. I mean, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had uh, nearly three decades with Tandy, and uh, that certainly came in handy. Uh, But, you know, it's just a labor of love is what was the driving force for the most part. What's cool about Chapter 2, you know, we've talked about the articles that you have written for, I guess, Scale Modeler and a couple other of those high-end modeling periodicals and everything. A lot of people have never had the opportunity to read your articles, and so now (laughs) you're giving them these enhanced versions of the articles, right? That's true. The first two on the chariot and the robot are only modestly enhanced. By the way, let me divert just for a second and talk about the robot, uh, because it, it relates to another thing I wanted to point out. As far as the book is concerned and the pricing, I wanted to come in a little, a little lower than we actually did, but because it's a full-color volume, it was hard to do that. Sure. I mean, there are over 200 illustrations in this thing, and they're all in full color. And that goes back to the experience I had with this robot article back in 93 when I submitted it to Scale Modeler. This is a an effort to completely light this thing up with beautiful color lighting. And guess what they did? They printed all but one photo in black and white. Oh, man. It's like, what's the point, guys? You know, give yeah. me a break. You know, and the picture they chose for color was not one with the lights on. Oh, man. So, <laughs> so is somebody out to lunch here or what, you know? <laughs> so I made up my mind this is going to be a full-color volume, and if it had, the price has to be a little higher, then so be it. And 
hopefully people understand that. But, uh, uh, no one's going to complain, so, but, I'm sure. <laughs> but back to the, uh, the articles, they are all slightly enhanced, except for the Jupiter 2 article, which is greatly enhanced. And let me explain that to you a little bit. Sure. Um, that was a two-part article uh, in Scale Modeler in 97. I think it was uh, September and November issues, if I'm not mistaken. And I knew that I had a longer version of that article somewhere because I had to cut it down for word count restrictions. Mm-hmm. And so I went through all my stuff, and guess what? I found the doggone thing on a floppy disk. A floppy disk? Oh, man. Now, now I own several PCs, okay? And one of them is a fully functional Windows 98 system, which I still use for a lot, all right? Okay. So I have no problem reading floppies. Now, check this out. It was done on the old Tandy DeskMate operating system. Oh, boy. Yeah. If you remember DeskMate, it was basically before Windows 3.0 and 3.1. Oh, man. And I wrote wrote all these articles on Tandy DeskMate. And, uh, of course, I can still read them. You know, I can convert them to ASCII and then dump them into another Word file if I want to. I can do anything I want with them. So I found this long version, and uh, I modified it a little bit, but... Essentially, that's what this new Jupiter 2 article is. It's about 50% longer than the original published piece, but it retains all the substance of that piece. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those other things. I think the whole uh, the theme of this book, you could call it passions. You know, what are your passions? And a boyhood passion that I had and a lot of people had was building models. And, of course, I never... I never achieved, <laughs> I never achieved the skill level or uh, the finished products like you have, or, or other great guys that we know, like uh, Mark Myers, who does these wonderful, uh, oh, God, yes. wonderful buildups, which you also mention in chapter two, by the way. But, oh yeah, I mean, there was a point beyond which I simply stopped modeling, and that's kind of an odd situation. I mean, uh, after the Jupiter two scratch build was done, I was just Jupiter two out for a while. You know, mm. I mean, I. Because this thing went on for years. Uh, this is a long, long-term project, on again, off again for a long time. And then uh, the stimulus to finally finish it was the knowledge that the uh, motion picture was coming out in '98, and you know there were the likelihood that there would be tie-in merchandise, and all that created a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so get off your butt and finish it. So that's basically what I did. But after that model, I simply lost interest. Uh, that took it all out of me, basically. And add to that the fact that I started developing some uh, issues with uh, close-up vision mm. at the same time, and which have gotten worse over the years. So uh, I could still do this today if I wanted to, but it would be uh, three times the effort with uh, one step forward, two steps back, to the point where the frustration would nullify any enjoyment. So I'm basically not modeling anymore. And I'm so glad that guys like Mark Myers have picked up the ball, and his results are just spectacular. Oh, they really are. They really are. So that's great that you give a little shout-out to him as well. Oh, yeah. I hope you're enjoying our latest interview with artist Ron Gross as much as I am. Ron's artwork is a beautiful celebration of his talent and Lost in Space fandom. And that devotion really shines through when you listen to him. He's got more to share about his new book, latest Lost in Space artwork, and much more. So sit tight for part two of our interview with Lost in Space artist, Ron Gross. And so modeling, that chapter sort of closed for you, not that you don't appreciate the models and everything, but uh, oh, you, deci- yeah. you decide yeah. to get back into 2D art at that point, which takes us to uh, chapter three, and that's all about your early commissioned artwork pieces, right? That's right. Um 
And if people pick up the book and wonder why that particular uh, chapter is not more extensive, one of the reasons is that most of the the uh, pieces of box art I did for Mobius are also represented as posters. Mm-hmm. And to duplicate them didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So that section would appear to be a little bit truncated. There's still a lot of information there, some good photos, but... If you want to see the results of uh, some of that box art, just turn to the following chapter on the poster art projects, and uh, everything is there. Well, I like you had this uh, one panel where you show four different images. Three of them are preliminary sketches, and then you have the final version of the Polar Lights artwork. And that was really cool to see. That kind of shows you a little bit of your methodology, how you're you were working with it, the framing, the composition, and everything, until you got it the way you wanted it to. Of course, uh, you also mentioned then they cut off part of the... (laughs) Part oh, of the yeah, well, it, first of all, let's talk about those sketches. You know, those are sketches, right? Right. I mean, look how tight they are, Elaine. Those yes. are pencil, okay? Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, does that say it all while yeah. I was looking for help from uh, guys like Mark and Gary way back when? <laughs> uh. Even my sketches you know, look like finished pieces because I don't know how to do it any other way, you know? Well, like uh, I said, you're detail-oriented, you know? you're very. I, I guess, yeah. Yeah. I still envy guys like them, though, who uh, who are able to just do things so freely and spontaneously and make it look controlled. That's a very difficult uh, thing to do, and that's why my hat's off to them. But those are fairly small pencil sketches. In fact, uh, I've got one hanging up. Let me take a look at this thing right now. I'll give you the actual size. They're about 7 by 7 inches. That's all they are. Mm. And then I, I took wow. the final one and blew it up onto a canvas, and that was an oil painting on uh, illustration board, primed illustration board. And yes, they did wind up... Uh, cropping it a little bit, yeah. Well, cropping it and also introducing some textured grain, which I wasn't real crazy about to presumably enhance the retro aspect of it. It's retro already, for crying out loud, as far as I'm concerned, you know. Uh, and again, that's not a hard criticism. I was just thrilled to be involved at all. But I did want to uh, show people what the original piece looked like before all the uh, processing changes took place. Yeah, no, that's cool. And you wound up doing, I think it was, what, like 11 pieces of box art? Uh, that's, that's a total based on uh, everything I've done. And some of the work I've done is not Irwin Allen, okay? Oh, yeah. but uh, I think I did half a dozen for Mobius and then, of course, the Polar Lights. And then, uh, uh, you know, there were some other companies I worked with uh, for monster subjects, et cetera. But there were a total of 11 that I counted, yeah. That's really cool. you got to be – I mean <laughs> – I don't know what it feels like, but it must be really awesome when you see a, a model kit box with your artwork on it, like that flying sub <laughs> leaping out of the water. Or the, <laughs> that is so cool, Ron. That's really got to make you proud. And then uh, it does. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, I'll say something about that flying sub piece. You know. <laughs> My original intention was to do a flying sub in the water, right? So I submitted the original sketches to Kevin. He called me up and he said, what's the name of the thing? I said, the flying sub. I said, well, then make it fly, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) That's Kevin. That is Kevin. But he was right. I mean, admit it. It looks awesome the way you've got that thing. And then Kevin asked you to do some commissioned artwork before you even start getting into the posters and things, right? You know, let's talk about that. I mean, sure. uh, Kevin was a very generous soul, all right? Yes, he was a hardcore uh, executive yeah, and yeah. producer and all that stuff, and there are stories about him flying off the handle and losing it, and, and he never did that with me, by the way, never. Uh, but he was a very generous individual. i got to tell you uh, tell you a brief story. I wouldn't put this out there if he were still with us, but I'm going to tell you this story now. When I did the uh, 45th anniversary logo for uh, Lost in Space, that one was never actually used because there were no products out that year. Oh, okay. Uh, but it was still a commission piece, and I got paid for it. And then when we came to the the point where the 50th anniversary was due, 
actually wrote to him and I said, do you want me to repeat my efforts from five years ago? And he said, sure. So I sent him some samples. He picked the one that you see in, in the book there. And when it came time to do the uh, 50th anniversary logo, basically what I asked from Kevin was the same dollar amount I got for doing the 45th anniversary piece, right? Mm -hmm. And he wrote me this email back. This is the part that I didn't want to share unless, it, you know, if he were still here. He said, I'm willing to do more than that, my friend. And he wanted to give me 50% more than what I asked for. Wow. Yeah. That's... I mean, very generous, fair-minded yes. guy. No question about it. And, uh... I can't say enough about him. I just, I just, I just can't believe that we've lost him. I can't either. Well, at least this one got to be used, correct? The fiftieth one. Oh, it was all over the place. Yeah, and there was even a commemorative pin made by Mobius Models, uh, which no. I have several of, by the way. <laughs> That's great. Uh, but this one was used extensively. Yes, sir. That's beautiful. That one's the one, folks, that has the image from the uh, animated opening with. I guess it's supposed to be Doctor Smith popping out of the the saucer right. and shooting the right. ray gun, and it's cool. So hats off to you there. Oh man. Well, so that started you on a journey that really is the heart of the book, and that gets into all of right. your poster art, uh, which led to the calendars and so forth. So chapter four, what time frame are we talking about here? What is that? Uh, the poster art, right, that actually started uh, in 2014. 2014, okay. Yeah. Wow. And I'll tell you how it got started. The first piece was not released until the spring of 2015. That was my very first poster, the one that is titled uh, 50th Anniversary Tribute. That's the collage, right? Yes, the collage. Yes. The cast collage. After the success of the uh, logo, I thought to myself, you know, that went pretty damn well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's just see if we maybe we can contribute on yet another level. So I put together this piece, and, and I sent it to Kevin, and uh, he called me right back, and we talked about it. and. It led to a licensing agreement uh, eventually. So that's what I've been doing since then. Uh, this is now my sixth anniversary of being licensed. Awesome. And, uh, the posters that are listed in the book, I have 43 of them. That's interesting because I've only put out 40. So oh. anybody who buys the book is going to know what the next three are. That's cool. Of course, this is what you're famous for amongst the fan community is these posters, most famous for, I should say. And you have some beautiful, large format images of the posters and I would like to talk about a couple of them because I think they touch on some things that um, are kind of unique about your artwork. And one of them is called uh, Unidentified Sounds Require Investigation. And of course, fans will remember that one's the one with the robot and his electrified claws. This is inspired by There Were Giants in the Earth. And over the hills, we can see not one, folks, but two, two of our... <laughs> Our friends. No, I'm not screwing around with the Giants because they were, uh, they were supposed to have been featured much more extensively in the first season. That was okay. the original plan. So whenever I have an opportunity to feature uh, multiple Giants, that's something I'm going to do. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. That's been a thing with you as well, right? I mean, we wanted to see more of those Giants, didn't we? Yeah, I mean... Uh, uh, well, I certainly did. I suspect a lot of people did. I've got my first taste of that with the uh, box art for the Roto Jet Gun toy put out by Mattel, right. where they had a picture of the Robinson family basically battling an entire colony of giants. There mm -hmm. only, I think there were only two shown in that piece because of the angles involved with the way the weapons were oriented. You had the sense that there were many more of them, you know, so I wound up doing a tribute piece to that also. But uh, back to the one you referenced, um, yeah, the, the thing with the robot going out to investigate was a planned scene that was never filmed. Right. And I like doing things like that. Uh, planned scenes that were never filmed, or in some cases, uh, film scenes that wound up on the cutting room floor, like with the uh, aerial battle with John Robinson. That's another one. Yes. Yeah. Um, anything a little bit unorthodox that uh, makes the point 
and furthers the cause of dignifying the show per the uh, seriousness of the early first season. Yeah, because in the, the episode, I guess we get to see the robot leave. And then when he comes back, he's all kind of wackadoodle. His, his, exactly, his circuits yeah, have been yeah. scrambled by what he's seen. And right. you give us a glimpse at what he would have seen if that part of the script had actually been filmed. So that's really cool. Right. I love right. that one. That one's great. And another one, though, of course, I think we, we may have touched on this one, but it has stuck with me, is the one called The Caves Have Eyes. Uh, I, one I, of my personal favorites. I love that one, of course. Now, that has those darn uh, promo aliens from the pilot that we never <sighs> got to see. See in the series, right? Those guys again, yeah. Well, <laughs> we talked about that, but that is so cool. So refresh okay. people's memories on this one. Well, first of all, let me say that uh, in general, this chapter, I write a couple of paragraphs about each individual poster, and I include a lot of behind the scenes information and also information on art techniques, which may be a little boring for some folks, but uh, there's enough other cool stuff in there. So that if they're too bored, they can be amused by some other elements. Uh, but this particular uh, piece is interesting because, uh, first of all, I will share with you, the uh, chariot is represented on the ice, right? Right. I wanted to do something with that theme because I thought that was, it was just beautiful background imagery, you know? Absolutely. And, uh, it's really, really dramatic stuff, uh, the way it was filmed, etc. But all right, when you put the chariot on the ice and you're looking for a reflection, you can't just flip it, you know, if you're doing something digitally. And this was another one of my hybrid pieces, by the way. But uh, you have to get a sense of what the underside of that chariot looks like. So the way I did that was I took my little three-inch scratch-built chariot and put it on a mirrored surface and photographed it. And okay. That's where the detail for the, uh-huh. the underside reflection comes from. That's cool. Yeah, because yeah. it is. It, I mean, again, that's one of the things I really like about your artwork. It's clearly it's artwork, but it has almost this photorealistic quality to it. And that's a detail that, you know, an amateur <laughs> a novice wouldn't pick up on, but you went to that extra effort to make oh, that. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it, we would have not been able to probably put our finger on it, but something would have seemed a little off, right? Exactly. Exactly. You can't just flip something unless the original subject is a dead straight on profile. If there's any angle to it, that doesn't work. That's great. So you have to do additional work to figure it all out. And uh, that project with aliens, uh, by the way, that's speculated because that never occurred. Sure. I just thought it was kind of cool to combine those particular themes. But that was a project that represents some of my most uh, extensive uh, posters in terms of uh, time devoted to them. There are four or five of those that I spent months and months on. That's one of them. And there were, there were long periods of time in years past when I didn't put out any posters. That was the reason, because I was working on these long projects. Uh-huh. Uh, another one would be the one devoted to the tribute to the model kit called There Were Giants on Display mm-hmm. in 1966. Uh, oh, yeah. Another one would be the uh, From Earth to the Unknown with the uh, Gemini 12 and the Robinsons and Smith and the Robot. Uh, I love that one. So, that one's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah thanks. Up on the and crater. of course, the Roto Jet Gun tribute was another one. That one, oh, right, that one gave me fits. I was looking for a way to get more than two giants in there, by the way, but I figured I'd stop there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, they may not have had it on the show, but we've got your posters and uh, and all your artwork to look at. We can imagine, right? It's, uh, right. So that's what it's all about. Uh, it's supposed to be thought-provoking, and it's supposed to dignify the show. I'm just so tired of people uh, talking about Lost in Space as the silly kids show. And, and it was beyond a certain point. There's no question about that. But there's a lot to be said for those early episodes and what they represented. And uh, that's my 
job to try to bring that out. Well, you do it beautifully, Ron. And I agree with you. You know, the average person who's not a fan of the show but remembers it probably is only remembering the color versions, which did get a little bit more comedic and campy at times. Not that there weren't some great episodes in the in the later seasons, but you know, the show had definitely morphed out of what it was originally intended to be for a variety of reasons. But you, right. you're keeping everybody focused and reminding them that, hey, certainly the first third or more of uh, season one was pretty much keeping right, with up, that up theme. up through the Keeper. The, after the Keeper, it gets a little spotty, but there's still some great episodes after that. Yeah. So I always describe it as the, approximately two-thirds of the first sure. season lived up to the uh, original premise and the, that uh, was conveyed by that CBS promo back in 65. It is. It's amazing what a 60-second promo can <laughs> can do. Changed know. my life, I'll tell you that. Exactly. Well, then you go beyond poster art, right? Because that's the chapter five. You, that's right, when you right. got started getting into the calendars. So that would have been what? like uh, The first calendar uh, was the 2018 calendar, and it utilized all of my posters up to that point that were oriented in a portrait uh, format. And that's the only calendar I put out like that. The rest are uh, oriented as a landscape format. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, so uh, that was the next step. But like I described in the book, beyond 2018, when we get to the later years, to have enough illustrations to cover all 12 months became a little difficult. So I wound up doing a few illustrations that were uh, equally inspired, but perhaps a little less elaborate. Uh, some of them represented some uh, contextual uh, variations of existing artwork, which I thought were interesting. So that's how we were able to fill that out with the required 12 months, and uh, we're still going strong. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, for those who get the book, they'll actually get a look at the 2022 calendar in here as well. Yeah, correct? I'm going to be announcing that real soon here before Wonderfest. That'll be coming up soon. You'll also notice deeper in that chapter, I talk about other categories of artwork. One is the cast member artwork, uh, which I won't say too much about that because it's been used in the trading card set already. But then I have a whole series of artwork that I call remote viewer artwork. Okay, now, I wanted to the, talk. What, yeah, I wanted to ask you what about is that. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right, what remote viewer artwork is based on one of two categories. Number one, observation through the time tunnel, mm-hmm. or number two, scrutiny from the vantage point of the invaders from the fifth dimension. Now, I put out several of these already as posters, but there are a ton more that have never been seen. You'll see them for the first time in the book. Mm-hmm. I have a total of 24 of those, as a matter of fact, and they are uh, uh, interesting, and you can make up your own storylines. They're, they're not based on any particular uh, story canon. This is all imagination. It's all fantasy, but that's what's fun about it. Oh, yeah, it's really cool. It's kind of a neat mashup. I like the ones with the fifth dimension, but I also like you have the time tunnel sort of and the image of the lost in space scenes are sort of superimposed through there. So it's kind of a neat mashup Mm -hmm. of those two Irwin Allen properties. That they're looking into the future. The time tunnel was actually set in the late 60s, uh, only a couple of years in advance of when it was actually filmed. So they're looking in the future 30 years, uh-huh. presumably anyway. Uh, of course, with the invaders from the fifth dimension, all bets are off because we're dealing with the fifth dimension. And, uh, oh, we're time and space. Apply, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> everything's, uh, everything's scrambled there. Oh. Yeah, right. That's great. And of course, just like in the trading cards, which we'll talk about next because that's where you go in chapter six, some of those images have a, a meeting of the minds, so to speak, between the fifth dimension aliens and the pilot aliens, the missing pilot aliens. Oh, yeah. You know, you know that's going to be poster number 43, and I'm not sure how well that's going to go over because I did it for myself. <laughs> oh, I think um, it'll go over. 
but yeah, it uh, you know I had to have a way of reconciling the similarity of the makeup, and uh, I chose to do it a certain way in the trading card set. So I and I'm I'm going to put that out as a poster also. That'll be poster number 43, which is the last scheduled poster at this point. Uh, not sure how many more there will be after that, or if we'll go into other projects. But uh, I do have two additional poster pieces uh, in the book, by the way. One is simply the raw version of the cover of the book. And then there's another one that uh, is a pullback scene based on a previous piece I did. That I was able to include all the cast members, even a couple of interesting aliens. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think that one will go over well, too. I, I wish Kevin could have seen that one. I think he yeah. really liked it. But uh, So we got those two uh, impending after this uh, lot of 43, and then we'll see what happens after that. That's great. Well, again, folks, hey, you want to see some of this stuff you haven't seen before, get this book. <laughs> This is this is your chance to, to see it, and you'll see it eventually anyway, but it is so nice that you put that in there. That's a nice treat for those of us that are getting to thumb our way through this thing. So chapter six, chapter six, we get to the trading card set, which was the talk of the Lost in Space fan community for much of 2020. We talked a lot about that, of course, on our last interview, but what's neat about this chapter, I think, Ron, is you give the behind-the-scenes story of where this thought of doing a trading card set came from and how it was inspired by the original Topps trading card set. And uh, I think that's worth us just going over a little bit again and the and the whole way sure. you and Kurt got hooked up with his company, Monster Wax. It's a neat story. Yeah, Kurt, uh, he's really an easy guy to work with. He's a great guy, obviously a true fan, you know. It's, uh, it's been a good relationship. So uh, everything kind of fell in place there the way it was supposed to. Exactly. But you talk at some length about how the original Topps cards, you were fascinated with those, but they had their frustrations, particularly the... Oh, God, they were, you know... <laughs> the narratives on the back. The narrative the, made no sense. I right. mean, it, it's like, you know, dropped a stack of cards on the table and said, write a story about this, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was the end of it, but... Uh, and they did know. it to you again. They put that card, what was it? Uh, was it number aliens two? Are listening. The aliens number are two. listening. Yeah, eight. you know what? <laughs> Just add insult to injury, why don't you, for a, to a 12-year-old kid. I was 12 when the cards came out, the uh-huh. Topps cards, and they've got that alien stuck in there again. I mean, I talked about that in the book, by the way. Uh, and in fact, I put an image of that card in there. But yeah, the Topps cards, look, uh, they had issues with the storyline. They were it was sloppily done, but they were still a compelling set of cards. Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. Based on the quality of the photography itself. Right. The chosen images, the fact that the storyline was not accurate, they dealt primarily with the first early first season, like I'm doing, you know. And so uh, my hat's off to them. That was my inspiration. Uh, even the style of the cards is patterned after what right. they did. Yep, you kept the border, the white border around the edges and everything. Oh, yeah. yeah. But as we talked about at length, you really corrected the missteps that Tops had with the back of the cards because not only do you have accurate write-ups, you give us a whole storyline that goes along with right. uh, the cards, which is really cool. I mean, it's like a book itself if you go through the cards in sequence there. So that's what's really neat. Well, it is accurate, but it's also somewhat speculative, Lane, because I wanted to find a way to integrate elements from the unaired pilot with the actual aired series. And that required taking a few liberties, nothing that seriously affected the storyline. But, for example, when I start dealing with multiple encounters with the Giants, if I were to have done that in the exact linear timeline uh, for which it was intended, We'd be dealing with one giant attack after another in rapid succession to the point where it would make no sense. So I moved the timeline for the giant attacking the Jupiter 2 to a later point in time. Uh, So astute observers will probably notice that was supposed to have occurred and there were giants in the Earth. Mm -hmm. It was a scene that was cut and um, I reinserted it, but at a later point in the timeline. 
So little things like that that I had just had no choice. I had to take some liberties to make it flow in a continuous and logical manner, you know. But other than that, uh, and the integration of these elements from the unaired pilot, uh, it is a very accurate representation of the actual events. Well, I mean, I feel like, to me, it was a glaring omission that we never saw the, the giants again, because you got to figure there couldn't be just one of those creatures on the entire planet, and there had to be more of them. And why why did they only show up in one episode? Well, actually, they do show up, but they show up as a... <laughs> As a man-sized uh, monster, you know, running out of the keeper's ship or something right, like that, right. you know, it's a weird thing that they wouldn't show up at some point. It was such a great uh, thing, but I guess it was the old uh, Hollywood adage, right? Or Barnum and Bailey, I don't know who said it, but, you know, always leave them wanting more, I guess, huh? Well, I remember reading a newspaper article where June Lockhart was quoted as saying way back in the 65 when this started, something about the giants keep showing up over and over again. <laughs> because that was the original plan. Uh, the original series was supposed to have been based on that idea. Right. Uh, the indigenous aliens versus the uh, giants in a conflict that had been going on for millennia. The Robinsons now caught in the middle of it. Uh, that was the plan, to have these giants recur over and over again. Um, and, uh, that, of course, that was dropped when they added the additional characters and the show went in an entirely different direction. But she was quoted as actually saying that uh, at one point. I, I don't know what I did with that article, where that is, but maybe somebody can dig it up after they hear this. But uh, I'd yeah. like to find that. If somebody does out there, uh, send that to my Facebook page, because I'd really like to read that. That's interesting. Huh. It's just a one-line thing in an article that's really about uh, her and the show in general, but, but I did notice it for obvious reasons. That's an area of interest of mine. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, yeah, so... We didn't get to see it on the show, but we can certainly enjoy it in your artwork and, of course, the trading card set, which, like I said, again, congrats on that. That's just been a fantastic thing. And that leads us up to your final closing comments, which, permit me, I wanted to quote something because it's a better version of the way I feel about it. And uh, you start off with this. She said, uh, I've often wondered what it is about the human psyche that results in certain passions that seem to last a lifetime. You know, it's something I've been asking too, and it, it kind of gets to the heart of this whole thing, doesn't it, Ron? Yes, it does. And you have a quote from uh, Star Trek, actually. Uh, what is that Spock quote again? I was talking about uh, building the Jupiter II and how thoughts about that process always would uh, crop up in my mind as I was cutting the family lawn back when I was a kid, right? Yeah. And, and a few years ago, and cutting my own lawn, now in my 60s, I went back into that same mode of thinking. Then I kind of snapped out of it and realized that, hey, dude, you did that two decades ago. It's over, you know. Uh, so this is what I wrote. Um, All of the longing and anticipation had now been removed from the equation. There was no more quest to pursue in that particular subject, nothing more left to conquer. I couldn't help thinking about Spock's memorable line near the end of the classic Star Trek episode entitled A Muck Time when he remarked, after a time, you may find that having is not so pleasing a thing after all as wanting. It is not logical, but it is often true. Mm. Uh, think about that and the implications it has. Uh, right. Uh, you know, but in my case, uh, that wasn't the end because I suddenly realized that uh, I had a lot more going on and uh, that achievement did not turn out to be the closing of that chapter of my life at all. So, yeah, a lot of nostalgic stuff in that uh, ending piece. And uh, would, you, would you mind if I quote the final line? Uh, if you weren't going to do it, I was going to do it because it's beautiful. I, I love that part. Please. Yeah, Mike Clark loved that, too. Uh, for all of the critiques that he did of my writing, he, he said to me, what a way to end it. And uh, 
I go into this and I say, uh, in your case, my hope is that I've been able to tap into your own cherished memories and that they will stimulate you to take your own passions in any direction you choose. Stay young at heart, stay engaged, and above all, stay impassioned. In the end, you will find that these things define what life is all about. Beautiful. Beautiful. I want to say one more thing about that. You know, this book is about my experiences, Lane, especially the early chapters. But the whole point, you know, I can't speak for anybody else, but the whole point was to try to stimulate these memories in other people because we all have our own story, our own memories. And if I was able to achieve that, then I accomplished my purpose. That's great. No, well, you certainly have. And as I said, you've done it beautifully. And there's one more thing I want to mention from that final paragraph. And it ties into the way uh, we can close out (laughs) the chapter about the book is uh, this book was a dream of yours, correct? I mean, this is something you had thought about doing. You were thinking about writing books as a kid, and now you were a published author. And you say in your closing paragraph, uh, there's an important lesson to be learned that dreams are always worth pursuing, if only for the sake of our own personal satisfaction. And of course, you've gotten a lot of personal satisfaction out of doing all this artwork, but you've made a lot of other people very happy with what you've done, and that's got to be pleasing as well. Oh my God, it's uh, gratifying beyond belief. It's hard to describe it. Uh, To think that uh, this 11-year-old kid, and and i got to say, Lane, back in those days, I was the quiet and shy type, you know. I kind of kept to myself, and uh, and that was the way it was. Uh, but for me to have achieved this uh, is just uh, a dream come true. And I, by the way, I mentioned in that final piece, too, about what it would be like to go back in time and tell that 11-year-old kid what the future had in store for him. And, uh, uh, you know, I, he might just have a heart attack. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, Right. Uh, well, I mean, you know, look at all you've accomplished. 11 pieces of box art for four different model companies. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Two anniversary logo designs for the owners of the Lost in Space property, over 90 Irwin Allen illustrations, 43 poster releases, a licensed all-new Lost in Space trading card set, the definitive one in my humble opinion, and now this book. I mean, to say you're a lucky guy would be an understatement, I think, right? Yeah, especially since there are a lot of other artists out there who are probably a lot more talented than I am. And I've already mentioned two of them uh, with uh, Ah. Mark DeRay and Gary Makatura. But somehow this fell on me. Kevin believed in me for some reason. He wanted me to be the one to do this stuff. And I'm just honored to have been uh, selected in that respect. Uh, I hope that I've come through for him. Oh, you have. You have. And for everybody else. Well, folks, I mean, if you're on the fence about getting this book, I got to ask you uh, (laughs) why. And hopefully after hearing this interview and and hearing how passionate Ron is about the project and how how much I love it based on my uh, sneak preview of it, you got to order this book and get it in your hands because it it is something you're going to want to cherish for a long, long time. I don't think there's that many people on the fence that are listening to this show, Ron, but I, I can't wait to uh, – I'm still working off a PDF copy, so I can't wait to get a copy in my hand. So, uh, By the way, the physical copy of the book is uh, – it's, it's a nice piece. They, I'm, Amazon did a great job. And, yeah. and I will also say uh, you know, this is a, an oddball project because the front and back covers, the art, all the artwork, uh, obviously, even the formatting of the book, it's all done – by one guy, and that's me. Uh, and it was a tough, tough, long-term job. But uh, that's what a labor of love is all about, I guess. Yeah, we'll talk quickly, because I kind of skipped over that, and I meant to get that out. Talk a little bit about the specifications of the book, the formatting and everything, the size. Uh, all right, the book is 8 by 10 inches. It's 194 pages. As far as the formatting is concerned, uh, I wanted full manual control over everything. Uh, 
you know, that's the way I am. Surprise. Uh, surprise. Right, exactly. <laughs> so the structure of this book is uh, entirely uh, my design, and uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's something I'm, I'm quite proud of, I must say. Yeah, well, it's great. And full color is worth it in this case, folks, because... Oh, you, God, yes. Yeah. No more robot pictures in black and white, please. Exactly, exactly. Where can folks find your book uh, to get Well, two ways. You can buy it on my, on my website. There's a link for it. Uh, all I have to do is go to the site, uh, www.outerportals.com. There's a new link for book, and there's also uh, a highlight elsewhere that you can click on and get to that page. And that's your way of getting a uh, personally autographed uh, copy. If you do it that way, or you can just order it on Amazon itself, you know, and uh, you can order it that way. So right now, two different methods. There may be more as time goes on, but right now that's what we have. Right. You know, Ron, I have been super greedy with your time, and I, I have to apologize for that. But before we kind of close things out and say goodbye, can you give us any idea, or are you just taking a breather right now about what's next for you? Oh, boy. Well, you know, obviously, Lane, I, I'm not going to be doing this stuff forever. I think everybody knows that. And the way I feel right now, I'm going to have to say it almost feels like we're in about a seventh inning stretch here. Okay. Um, oh, man. But and on the other hand, I may decide to play a doubleheader. I don't know. Uh-huh. So uh, we'll see. But, uh, yeah, a break for a while, no doubt. Because, um, you know, uh, this this project is really extensive, much more so than the trading card set was. Because when you start proofing a book uh, and you find all these little things every time you read it, my goal was always, I want to get through it just once without any changes and then I'm good to go. Right? Wrong. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it doesn't work. You know, I'm yeah. sure there are little flaws in it, even with the final version, which I'm not going to do anything about now, of course. But it was, it was a tough, tough project. And then not knowing anything about the Amazon requirements or the, the formatting and having to learn all that on the fly uh, exacerbated the whole uh, situation. But well worth it in the end. But uh, Definitely do for a break here. Oh, well, you deserve it. You deserve it. And plus, you know, I think people will have to take their time with this book. And so everybody's going to be absorbed in absorbing Fantasy Worlds Beyond, the Irwin Allen art of Ron Gross. Congratulations, Ron. You deserve Thanks, all man. You deserve all the acclaim that you're getting for this. And I know it's just going to be another great hit, another feather in your cap. And I guess I want to thank you again, Ron, for being so generous with your time and joining us on uh, Alpha Control. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, my friend. You take care and thank you for coming on again. Appreciate it. All right. Sounds good, Lane. Thanks for everything, my friend. Bye-bye, Ron. Bye-bye. Wow, that was a blast talking with artist Ron Gross again. I can't wait to get my hands on his new book and find out what he has up his sleeve next. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you then. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you 
next week. Same time, same channel.